The United Soccer Coaches is proud to present the United Soccer Coaches podcast, presented by Team Snap and hosted by veteran soccer broadcaster Dean Linky. That's right, the NSCAA is now the United Soccer Coaches. We aren't changing who we are, just what you call us. Start your free, no-risk trial membership today. Go to unitedsoccercoaches.org slash join today. We unite coaches at every level of the game around the passion of the game. Now, here's our host, Dean Linky. Hello and welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. I am Dean Linky, and I am delighted to be with you wherever you may be. And remembering that the United Soccer Coaches mission is to unite coaches at all levels around the love and passion of the game. It is during these times when our country faces some major devastation, first around Hurricane Harvey in Texas, and now, right now, in fact, as we see Hurricane Irma hitting Florida and headed up the East Coast, we unite and support our members, each other, and those who need our help. We send our prayers and our well wishes to all of those families affected by Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma. One of our members, actually one of our former presidents, he held that job with the then-named NSCAA in 2009, the great Randy Waldrum, was right in the middle of Hurricane Harvey, and he witnessed firsthand that devastation and also that love and passion. Watching one of his former players at the Houston Dash, Kalia Ojai, and her boyfriend, Houston Texan NFL superstar J.J. Watt, stand up and do amazing work, generating more than $30 million already in relief aid. Now, when thinking about Randy Waldrum, who was let go after about three and a half years as the head coach of the NWSL's Houston Dash back in May, he is, perhaps for the first time in his life, facing some blustering winds of his own as he reassesses and chases his next job. Now, remember, Randy Waldrum is a man who was oh so close, not once but twice becoming the head coach of the greatest women's soccer team, the U.S. women's national team, making the final interview process when Tom Sermani was hired and again when Jill Ellis took the job. Randy Rodram was born in Irving, Texas. His roots are there. His family is there. So it makes some sense he went back. But also, as he admits, several of us questioned the move to leave Notre Dame, where he became only the second coach in NCAA history to win more than one NCAA Division I Women's Soccer National Championship. But Texas is his home. Randy Waldron played soccer in Texas at Midwestern State. Remember, we interviewed Doug Elder, their men's head coach, a few weeks back. And he led several prominent collegiate programs in Texas and nearby Oklahoma. He started his coaching career at Austin College in 1982, and then in 1988, he was the head men's soccer coach at Texas Westland University before moving to the University of Tulsa in 1989, where he coached both the men's and women's soccer teams. He posted a 66-33-6 record with the men and a 61-36-9 record with the women. In 1996, he founded the Baylor University women's soccer program and went 46-14-3 from 19. 1996-1998. He then became the head women's soccer coach at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, where the team's record in 14 seasons was 279-50-16. Waldrum led the Notre Dame women's soccer team to two national championships in 2004 and 2010 and three other runner-up finishes. The 2010 title game was his 300th match at Notre Dame, and he currently has 300 
199 total collegiate wins. Now, despite all of that success at Notre Dame and the stability any soccer coach would aspire for, he always had the burning desire to coach at the highest level. And for him, that meant professionally because he felt like that might be the only way to get his true dream job to coach the U.S. national team, a job that he openly said he wanted to have. Now, he considered a job with the WUSA in the early 2000s, changed his mind. Then again, was close to take a job with the WPS before again staying put in Notre Dame. But when Houston was granted a National Women's Soccer League expansion team in 2014, he jumped in headfirst as their first head coach, signing a three-year contract ahead of the 2014 season, packing up and heading out of South Bend, Indiana. After all of his amazing success, and let's not forget, by the way, during his time at Houston, he also essentially volunteered as the head coach of the Trinidad and Tobago women's national soccer team, using some of his own money to feed the team during World Cup qualification, and they just missed qualifying for the World Cup by virtually one game, despite almost unbearable and unreasonable resources. It was not a great three and a half years in Houston. And on May 29 of this year, he was let go as the head coach of the Houston Dash. However, with no regrets, amazingly, and truly, really no excuses, although I think you will agree he could fall on some, he is accountable and ready to return to greatness. And we certainly believe here at the United Soccer Coaches, Randy Waldrum will indeed do that. So really, for the first time since being let go with the Houston Dash, Randy Waldrum opens up about the real-life hurricane he saw, as well as dealing with losing a job he coveted for such a long time. It's such a compelling interview, I think, that for the first time ever on the United Soccer Coaches podcast, we are going to dedicate the entire show to just one coach, one voice, that of the former United Soccer Coaches President, Randy Waldrum. And we do that after this message from our presenting sponsor, TeamSnap. Does managing your club or league feel like a second job? If so, you might need some help. With TeamSnap, you can get it. Their customers save up to 15 hours each week on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Plus, everything you need is online, which means no more trips to the bank, no more lost checks, and no more colossal spreadsheets. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with TeamSnap. Go to TeamSnap.com United. Once again, here's Dean Linky. Thank you, Team Snap, and thank you, United Soccer Coaches, including their CEO, Lynn Berlin Manuel, Sean Chevro, Ashley Goodrich, Kurt Austin, Rob Keogh, Jeff Van Dusen, Ian Barker, the entire gang doing a great job out in Kansas City and across the country. Do love the United Soccer Coaches. You heard the opening intro of this entire show dedicated to one of our former presidents. Randy Waldrum held that job in 2009. He sat right in the middle of Hurricane Harvey and for the first time ever dealing with some tough times as well. Let go back in May as the head coach of the Houston Dash, but ready and willing to talk to us about everything he's accomplished and everything he's dealing with right now. Randy Waldrum, welcome to the United States soccer coaches podcast well 
thanks for having me, Dean. I really appreciate you. Yeah, well, we've always appreciated you, especially uh, over the years on the NSCA Game of the Week on Fox Soccer. You were such an incredible host at Notre Dame and got to know you really well there. And then your run as well with uh, the NSCA as the president and you know, truly a great friend to the United Soccer Coaches, formerly named NSCAA. So first off, let's get uh, the hurricane covered because Hurricane Harvey impacted so many in and around you where you live in Houston. You were evacuated. Thankfully, we understand there was no damage to your home, but you saw it firsthand. Tell us what you witnessed, and then we'll get to Kalia Ojai, who used to play for you at the Houston Dash and what she and J.J. Watt have done. But tell us first about how it impacted you, Coach. Well, you know, for us and my family, we were, you know, we, we thought we were going to ride it out. It looked like it was going to hit a little bit more west of us and then come back and hit a little bit more east of us. We were kind of in the middle uh, where my home is, is located. Then it moved in in the levees. We, we live very close to the Brazos River. So then they came back on a, a Monday morning when the storm really hit us in our area hard and said the levee wasn't going to hold. And then they man, you know mandated a, an evacuation really within just an hour. So we, we had very little time to, you know, I'm moving furniture and, and, and important documents upstairs in my home, trying to, to figure out what I need to keep safe and, and then trying to to pack up enough to, to leave. But I think, Dean, the thing I never realized is, you know, I've seen it on television from afar, and you see these catastrophes, but it never really hits home till it, it, it actually, you're a part of it. And, you know, we got in the car and probably did the absolute wrong thing to do, but we didn't have anywhere to go because all the major freeways, which is, is our access point to get to places, they were all completely underwater. And there was no shelter near my home set up at the time so we didn't really know what to do. So we just drove and headed out towards San Antonio, and we took some back farm roads to try to get there. And the water was up. It was, you know, you, you, you've been in Texas, and you know these old country roads where there's nothing. And water was up to the edges of the roads, and, and you're just driving, hoping that road's not shut down. And because I was worried if it was shut down, I'd have to turn around and come back. And, and I was afraid what I just passed would be flooded. And luckily, it took us about two hours of, hitting these little farm-to-market roads throughout the state of Texas to get us back on a major thoroughfare to get us close to San Antonio, and we were able to finally get out. But it was, it was a pretty scary thing, and fortunately, you know, we were gone four or five days not knowing the status of our home, and finally when the evacuation order was lifted, we got back and, and found out that our home didn't get flooded, but the, you know, we were just blessed, and thankfully God or our angels or you know, we're looking over us because uh, two streets over, the homes all around us were flooded. And my little neighborhood with a couple of streets right around me, for some reason, didn't. So we were very, very lucky. But it's devastating the damage that's done all around Houston and seeing so many families put out and some losing their lives, but others losing all of the things at home. And, you know, I'm thinking about simple things is all the memorabilia that's important to me of things of that I've collected over the years. I'm going, oh, this, we're going to lose everything, you know, and it's really, it's really pretty devastating. But um, fortunately, we got through it, and, and now the city's just in rebuilding. And of course, now we're going through the same thing with uh, with the state of Florida, with Irma. So certainly know what they're going through. Well, and we've seen so many incredible people rally around the Houston area, the state of Texas, and so many big leaders, perhaps none bigger, though, than Houston Texans superstar defender J.J. Watt, who is dating Kalia Ojai who played at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and was drafted by you. It's amazing. I think it's over $30 million now they've raised. 
He has. He's, they've done an incredible job. And, and I, when I talked to Lynn Erling there at, at uh, United Soccer Coaches, and she was checking in on me, you know, I told her, let's try to steer all of our association members, you know, to try to give to their organization. And one thing I can tell you is with JJ, they've already been out in the community and I've seen video of these 18-wheelers that they've been using the money and just loaded with things that the families need, and they're actually getting out in the cities and getting out throughout the, uh, the community, giving it back, and seeing him personally out there and, and Kalia out there giving it. And so the organization for anybody that wants is, is called youcaring.com slash Watt, and I think that would be a great place to give, and uh, he's done an amazing job. Trying to originally only... It only raised 200000 and now he's got over $30 million, so it's been amazing. Simply amazing indeed, and our hearts and prayers continue to be with all those folks, and as you said, the folks that are being affected right now as Irma comes rolling in. We talked before, and you've had so much success, and now you know being let go from the Houston Dash. You know, coaches are, get hired to, to be fired, of course, but you know, one of the things with you, Randy, that we talked about is uh, you built this Notre Dame program into such an amazing program, but yet you were always itching for that professional scene with the goal of being a national team coach. And, you know, here you are now. I kind of want to walk back to those days and remind everybody, as I said in the open, you had great success, you know, at Tulsa as well, coaching the men and the women. And then you uh, go over to Baylor and then you get the job at Notre Dame where you were there for 14 incredible years. So you're at Notre Dame. And let's go back to that point because, Randy, you had a couple other opportunities. First WSA, then WPS. And then finally you pulled the trigger on NWSL. What made you say you wanted to leave what uh, what everybody from you know outside looking in, and of course it's even worse today with social media outside looking in, but what made you say, you know what, this is great, but I want to do the pro scene? Well, I, I think, Dean, you know, and, and not every coach is going to be the same, but we're all competitors, and, you know, I've always just been driven to coach at the highest level, and I've always wanted to coach at the highest level possible, and as you mentioned, I've always wanted to be a part of either coaching our national team here in the U.S. or some country's national team and compete in a World Cup. And so those were always aspirations. And as you said, in 99, I, I was offered this operation job in San Jose. And it was just too fresh because I'd just gotten to Notre Dame. So I, it wasn't the right time. And, and then the same thing, I was offered the Atlanta job in the WPS. And just the stability and the way the league was going, it just still didn't seem to be the right fit for me. And then I think the, the thing Things that changed for me was Houston, and in hindsight, looking back, I don't regret the move because I'm always the kind of just looks forward, you know, and, and don't go relive, you know, the past. But I don't regret the move, but I probably should have investigated it a little bit more than I did with some of the things with the club uh, itself. But I always, I, I was, you know, had opportunities and was interviewed by the Federation, both when Tom Somani got the job and, and also again when Jill was given the job and I think one of the things that I really needed to get was more international experience so I just you know wanted to get more experience at that level in case the U.S. job ever came open or any other job in, in, around the world and, and I'd been at Notre Dame like you said 14 years we'd been to eight final fours we played in five national championship games we won two of those and I could have ridden out my tenure at Notre Dame and retired there and probably been quite happy but I took, you know, a big financial cut to, to come to Houston and take on the challenge. And I really did it because I just felt like the time was right. I felt like this league was a league that had the opportunity to to be around for a while. And then also what a lot of people don't understand is getting back close to, to Texas um, 
to my family, my son and his wife were just having our first grandchild. They now had two, and I, I wanted to be close to them in those very few years of their early beginning. I didn't want to not know my grandkids, and, and it just felt like a chance to come back home and, and do some good things at Houston. So that's that's why I made the move, and like I said, I don't regret it. I, I've learned a lot uh, with the league, and if the opportunity comes with another team, I'll be much better prepared for it. I do think it's made me a better coach than even I was at Notre Dame, and um, we'll see where where where, uh, where life takes me with the next move. What do you remember about when you had to go and tell Notre Dame that after 14 incredible years with a record of 279, 50, and 16, you mentioned those two titles in 2004 and 2010, and you said, you know what, I'm going to Houston. Well, it was those discussions are never easy, you know, to have. Jack Swarbrick was uh, great to me uh, as the AD there. Uh, I worked for you know him and Kevin White, who I think the world of as an athletic director. So it was never going to be easy, but I think it was just something that you know several things had changed. The admissions process was starting to get more and more difficult. You know, I think the fact that I'd lost my senior women's administrator who had retired that had been with me the whole 14 or 15 years, just some things, you know, had changed up there. And then, like I said, with my son and, and his wife getting ready to have the, our first grandchild, it just seemed like there were enough things pointing to this being the right time to do it, especially with U.S. soccer's involvement with this league as opposed to the other two. You know, it wasn't an easy decision. I think the hardest part is always telling your players, you know, that's, that's the hardest part. Um, you can get through on the business side of things, but telling your players that you're leaving is, is always difficult. So, you know, it was, was a hard thing to do, but it's one of those things that, you know, it happens in the coaching world. And, and luckily, some of those players continued on and had a chance to play for me at Houston for a few years as well. Well, obviously, uh, you took over the 2014 expansion team, Houston Dash, and signed a three-year contract. And I'm assuming, uh, you know, big visions, big dreams, maybe even big promises from the ownership. I'm not sure. You can share some of that as well as you went in there looking probably to build the same kind of dynasty that you built at Notre Dame. And, you know, the record 1939 and 13, obviously not what you had planned. So as you reflect on it, let's go to that first year, right, as an expansion team, and you're trying to build it. What went right? What didn't go right? Well, I think in hindsight, looking at it, Dane, and, and I'm not one that really wants to go make excuses. I think we're kind of living in a world right now where there's not much accountability. So I want to make it really clear up front. You know, I needed to have done a better job looking back in a lot of different areas, not only coaching on the field, but, you know, in player selection and moves that we made and things that a coach is responsible for because ultimately it's not going to be the players that are going to leave. It's going to be the coach that leaves when things don't go well. So certainly I want to take my share of responsibility. So I want to make that real clear. But I do think as an organization, when I said I didn't really research things enough, I think, and I'm not, you're the first one I've ever had this conversation with. I've not had this kind of a conversation with any media outlets. and I've, I've just kind of kept things quiet, you know, and, and I think... I think it's one that we probably jumped in too soon and too short of a window of time. When Houston made the decision to jump into the league, there was literally 90 days to go from no team to all of a sudden we need to hire a coach, get a front office intact, and get a team and be playing within 90 days. And I think it was too soon. I think we'd have been better suited to have joined the league but put off not playing in the first year and getting the front office in order, getting the staff in order, you know, getting your ducks in a row in order, and then trying to play that next year. And I think, um, in hindsight, that's where it was difficult because jumping into it 
in the league just really only being a year old at that time. You know, the expansion draft, you really didn't get much out of the expansion draft. You're getting the other eight teams at the time. You're getting those players that they're not willing to protect. So you're getting their reserve players, uh, in essence. And I really think that set us even a year back. So that first-year team, I'll always really have a lot of gratitude towards that group because they fought their tails off. They gave everything that they had. We just weren't a very good side. You know, I think I may have had some Notre Dame teams, honestly, that were better than that first year. But that's the only way you were going to get your players in that first year. And then we had some things not go our way. I mean, we didn't get the number one draft pick. The league had already promised it. We didn't get our pick of the two U.S. players that were coming back, you know, that were coming back into the league. We should have gotten the top two players that we wanted that were coming back to the league, and the league had already promised those players out. So we have some things that didn't go our way. We as a club probably didn't fight for those hard enough, and I think that was being naive with our administrative people within the club that didn't really know anything about women's soccer. So we made some mistakes, I think, in that first year, and I think having done that, what people don't realize is it takes you a year or two to get past that because then the next year, when you're trying to upgrade your team, you're only either going to do it through the draft or through trades. And... We didn't have much to trade. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. the players we had were players that weren't protected. So you're trying to keep the few players that you had that you wanted to build around. So you didn't really have a lot of trade bait. So we didn't gain much in that second year. So I really thought it put us behind the eight ball a couple of years on it. And then I think the other side of it, and I'll kind of leave it at this with Houston, because I don't really want to badmouth things here in Houston and the organization. I'll just, I'll just say this. I think there were some things that were promised – uh, that we didn't get, and there were some resources that were promised that we didn't get. And I think Houston, I think people that know anything about our sport, Dean, can look at what I've done over 30 years of coaching and seeing that I've been successful everywhere. Um, and I think now they can look at the team from the time that I've gone because I basically haven't been here all season, and things haven't changed. They're now losing their better players. Um, I think people can see that there's – other issues in Houston. It's not just me. So uh, I would just say this. I think the organization needs to decide that they're really committed to being in pro soccer on the women's side because I think the other MLS franchises have. Orlando certainly has. Uh, Portland certainly has. And I think once Houston makes that decision, make some changes and restructure some things that they have in that front office, um, then I think they can be very successful because there's a lot of great things here in Houston in place for the organization to be successful. But I just felt like, without going into more detail than what I've shared with you, I just feel like, you know, we weren't on the same playing field as the other teams in the league, and, and I'll just leave it at that. Well, you can leave it at that, but when did you realize that, though? Because here's the thing. We talk about, you know, coaches getting hired to get fired, and, and here you are. You had that three-year contract, and you're battling through. And, you know, they always talk about coaches getting gray hairs or losing their hair, right, as they're dealing with the, the stress of it. Like, you know, how stressful was it? I mean, was it stressful all three years or just the fourth year? Personally, mentally, you know, as you, as you think about the incredible success you have had, Randy, and we right. talked about that to start the show. No, it was it was stressful all four years, but it really hit home probably as we got into the second year, and, and that's also a year we changed ownership. You know, that first year we were owned by AEG, the whole Dynamo organization and the Dash, and then we you know we sold and were bought by uh, Gabe Brenner. Uh, AEG sold to Gabe Brenner, and so I think there was you know a year there where 
in freezes and and in a year of, we're going to just take up we're going to keep doing business as is and and he's going to get his feet wet and see what, what the condition of both of the clubs were and of course on the men's side things weren't going well at the time either and uh, you know they made a change there with Dom and uh, you know so that probably didn't help our cause because some of the things that we needed in terms of staff and some resources I was basically doing most everything and uh, and that's just put us at a competitive disadvantage and like I said I, I'll go back and, and reiterate I needed to have done a better job but I also needed to be on the same level playing field as the other teams in the league so I realized it really in year two that it wasn't what it was presented to be and and so it really made year three and tough year year three and four really difficult, Dean. I, I won't lie to you because it was just more of the same, and I felt like I was just butting my head, you know, against a brick wall, and and I just never felt like the commitment was ever really there. That we we kind of jumped into it, but that we didn't really jump into it full force. And then I I saw the way that the Portlands and the Orlando's coming into it really were aggressive and you know them doing the same for the women that the men have and then of course you know the other teams that aren't MLS franchises were their front offices their whole focus is only on the women so you know it's 24-7 and they're doing everything they need to, to do and I just didn't think we had that same amount of resources or the same amount of, of aggressiveness within our club and so it really made the last two years a, a pretty Time. Stay with us on the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. More with Randy Waldron. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. This is Dean Linky for the Huddle High Pod Camera System. You can capture the entire pitch with high-angle video to elevate your club. Now through September 30th, Huddle is offering a free High Pod Camera System to qualify new signups. Get above the action with a High Pod Camera to never miss a moment. Then upload to Huddle to review video, track stats, and improve your team's performance. The system comes with an HD video camera, 21-foot tripod, and HD monitor. Visit Huddle, spelled H-U-D-L huddle.com slash hypod to sign up. That's huddle.com slash hypod H-I-P-O-D. Back to the show and our visit with Randy Waldrum on the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. And Randy, when we went to the break, you were talking about some of the stress you were under in Houston. Was it a situation where you felt like you had to fight for your job at all? Or what was going on there? The way, I, I never went in and asked for another chance. I mean, okay. that was never a that was never a, a conversation. In fact, even in the last year, you know, I had even when things weren't going well, I'd even had a conversation with with the president and and indicated to him if it was better for the club that I leave, I was willing, you know, to do that at that point in time because it wasn't it wasn't working the way it was going, and right. and it was like, no, that's not what we want to do, and. And I just felt like we could never get on the same page with going, here is the vision for us, and, and let's take whatever it takes, three years, five years, whatever it takes to get to this point. Right. This is the way we want to build the team. I always thought we were just jumping around. Well, these players aren't working, so let's move them and grab another group. And 
and, and there was never any real build, you know. I thought the second year in our draft when we picked up players like Rachel Daly and Janine Becky and Carrie Vaccaro, and, you know, I, I felt like we finally were kind of on the same page of getting some good young core players where we could build and knowing that it would still take us a little bit of time, but I felt that's we were headed in the right direction, but really only felt that way, you know, in that actually that was the beginning of the third year um, and not the second year, but I just really felt like, you know, that that was my vision, and I I just never felt like we were all on the same page, because I I really couldn't tell you what what the overall vision of the club was, you know, for the women's team. Okay. And I think battling it on two fronts with the things that went on the men's side didn't help things, you know, on the women's side, you know, a little bit, too. In fairness, they'd gone through letting Dom go, and then having Owen Cole come in, and that not working out, and you know, and then and, and then this year bringing in Wilmer has done a great job uh, getting that turned around. So hopefully some stability will set in um, with the club because, like I said, facility wise it's great, soccer community wise it's 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 great. You know, I think it can be a really uh, really big player in the league if they just decide they really want to have a team and treat it as a a, a pro franchise. You know, Randy, I'm not surprised uh, knowing you. You're such a noble guy. You just said you take responsibility, and, and, you know, well done you for doing that. But you didn't really even have any assistant coaches there, did you? You know, like I said, I didn't, don't want to make excuses, but, but no, we, we, weren't, we weren't at the same playing field as everybody else. I, I, I didn't have any uh, full-time staff. My assistant coaches were volunteers, my goalkeeper coach, my assistant coach. I didn't have a strength and conditioning coach. I didn't have a sports scientist. Um, so, you know, nothing full-time. It was it was all volunteer. That's got to be hard because at Notre Dame you had all of that tenfold, right? Yeah, it's hard. The, the hard part was there just wasn't enough hours in a day, you know, for me because we were training in the mornings and my volunteer assistants could be there for training, but then they've got to leave and go to their full-time job so they can they can pay their bills. And, and so everything else is coaches know there's so much you know breaking video down of uh, scouting reports breaking video down of your past games for your team you got to break video down for your individual player meetings that you have and and then on top you're trying to make player moves and you're trying you know you're trying to have individual player meetings and it just it just can't be done by one person so i just never felt we were on that same level playing field as the rest of the league what do you remember about uh, the days leading up to May 29th, Randy? And then one of the things that uh, I, I totally found fitting, knowing you the way I know you and what a great citizen you are, is Omar Morales for the Houston Dash You know, said that he wouldn't take the job before he called you, and you told him you got to do it, you know? So you, right. you stepped right up there. So talk about uh, those final days and then telling him to go for it. Well, you know, I really think there was no warning. I mean, I, I didn't. It was no different. We we gotten on a bad stretch, you know. Uh, I'd lost several in a row and, and some some close ones. And you know, the difficulty for me is I felt like I never had my team together the way I had envisioned building it. You know, it's you know we didn't anticipate, for example, Carly Lloyd not playing with us for the first. We thought we were going to have her all year, you know, and 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 then she ends up choosing to go to Man City, and so now we don't have her at the beginning of the year and. You know, again, we come in with an injured Morgan Bryan, and we don't have her at the beginning of the year. And Andressa comes in injured uh, with, you know, eight or ten weeks of nothing coming into preseason. And so a lot of those key players that we really wanted to build around, mm. I just never felt like I ever really had them together, uh, playing together. And so there was really, 
just, you know, frustrations of, again, being so close and not being able to get over the hump, but thinking in my mind we're getting we're getting close and we're getting close to being healthy and fit with the team. And, you know, if we can hang on here, we were coming into a stretch of games, too, that I felt very comfortable about that we could get some results in. But there was no real warning. There wasn't anything where I'd been having conversations with the club. I just got the call that morning and, and uh, you know, from the president saying he wanted to meet and, you know, that the owner wanted to make a change. So it was it was pretty I mean, it was that quick and, and not much, uh, you know, uh, of a warning to it. So, but I did, you know, Omar, I had brought him in. And, and when I had brought him in, too, I'd made it real clear. I didn't want him to leave his college job because I said, right now, if we don't win, there's a good chance I'm not going to be around, you know. And um, it's just something that you know as a coach at that level, you've got to, you know, you've got to win. And um, so I said, but I want you to come in and, and assist me, and he, he jumped at the opportunity. So when that happened, you know, um, when he called, I said, Omar, you you got to do it. You know, take this and run with it and make the most out of it. And if they keep you on, on, you know, for another year, great. If they don't, you only have this year to finish it out. Then take advantage of coaching at this level in this league to continue to educate you as a coach. You'll be better for it, you know, with your next move as well. So, um, you know, so I've supported him. I've tried to stay out of it. I haven't gone around practice, I haven't talked to the players, I haven't really initiated any calls to him. I think he's called me two or three times, and we've had a few conversations. But, um, you know, like I did when I walked away from Notre Dame, I didn't want to continue having a presence around that program, and I haven't around the dash. I kind of stayed away from it. One presence that is there now and wasn't during you know our heyday <laughs> and uh, calling games and Notre Dame getting going is social media as well. And how much stress did that add on you, Randy? Are we able to ignore that, or is that one of those things that kind of creeps into your world as well? Well, I think coaches always tell you, you know, I don't read it, I don't hear it, I, I you know, I don't have time for it. And I think you know, I think as coaches, we don't have time for it. For the extent that we probably do hear it, but it, it's it, you hear it. it; it's there. It's you can't, you know, you can't steer away from it. I mean, everywhere, because you also want to have some social media presence as well to market your program. I mean, there's a lot of positives that come out of this day and age with social media because you can get to so many people directly right away. But it's it's it was brutal, and you know, there was uh, it can be and. If you let it uh, get to you, you know, it can really drag you down. And I just realized that, you know, those people that made comments um, have no idea about coaching. And they're people that's passionate about their team, and they have every right to be passionate about their team. And so their frustration level when you don't win is obviously going to be taken out on you. And I would rather it be taken out on me than it would be on the players because that's where it bothered me the most when, when, when I would see them single out players. And I think because a lot of them don't realize these a lot in a lot of cases these are still young players that are 18 19 20 years old and they're trying hard to make a living and and, and trying to be a good pro and you know I, I would rather in those cases it be taken out on me than it would be on to the players and you know that's just something I've always believed in I, I would never throw our players under the bus and I always tried hard to just take the hit and, and put the blame on me and not you know ever put it on the players and and that's something I'll always pride myself on and know that I did that the right way and and um, but the social media part can can be good uh, in a lot of ways but it certainly has a lot of negatives I think people write things before they really think oftentimes and they don't realize uh, the impact that it can have. 
And we'll have more with Randy Waldrum, including discussion about his time as the head coach of the Trinidad and Tobago women's national team after these messages. Managing your club or league shouldn't feel like a second job. With Team Snap, it doesn't have to. They help customers save their time and sanity on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to TeamSnap.com United. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast and our visit with Randy Waldrum. And remember, we talked about his decision to leave Notre Dame was about coaching at the highest level and his aspirations to also coach a national team. Well, guess what? While he was coach of the Houston Dash, he was also the coach of the Trinidad and Tobago women's national team during qualification for the World Cup. That wasn't easy. There were times where he even had to pay for meals for the team as they were getting ready for important games. Randy, that was quite the experience as well. Well, it was an experience of a lifetime. And again, Dean, it's where you look at it and say, well, why would he have ever left Notre Dame? But if, if I hadn't left Notre Dame, I would have never gotten that experience with Trinidad and Tobago because, you know, what was going on, the qualification was going on in the fall. So, um, you know, it, it was a great experience from a standpoint of those players I still love all of those kids. I'm in touch with them regularly. They stay in touch. It's a country that's, as you well know, is kind of third world in terms of uh, their sport and the organization of it. And uh, and those kids have nothing. I mean, literally getting into practice <clears throat> was difficult because a lot of them didn't have a few dollars just to even get a taxi to get through town to get to practice. And so many, you know, don't have the things that our kids have here, and they appreciate so much, and they would run through a wall for you. So it was a, a great experience. I had the good luck that uh, Sheldon Phillips, who is Lincoln Phillips' son, uh, and Lincoln goes way back with our association as well. And, oh, yeah. Uh, with our federation and, a, a, you know, a great coach in his own right. And Sheldon was the actual the general secretary, so he reached out and is the one that got me on board, and he and I fought some battles that were unbelievable because we were getting no financial support at all from the federation and um you know people don't realize i mean we came so close to qualifying on basically nothing but i can't tell you i mean we could spend two hours talking about this i mean we we had situations where they sent the team here to the u.s uh to get ready for opening game against the u.s in qualification and they sent them here a week in advance with no money virtually and no administrators, and that's when I put this tweet out that kind of went viral uh, around the world, saying I'm supposed to qualify this team and I have no money, can anybody help? And and I sent that tweet out basically knowing that we were in Dallas at the time stationed for the next six or seven days before we went to Kansas City to open with the U.S. and, and the qualifiers in CONCACAF. And my panic was I'm responsible for these 15 young ladies with no money, how am I going to feed them? You know, my mind wasn't even honestly on training, which it should have been, focused on preparing for the U.S. I'm literally trying to go, how am I feeding them uh, lunch and dinner for the next seven days? Because mm. breakfast was at the hotel, and I had that covered, and we took care of a little of that personally, my son and I, who assisted me. And, and, uh, and, and, and you know, so we had that piece covered, but for those six or seven days, we didn't know. And, and the American Outlaws were great. We had the community. I mean, this just shows you what the soccer world is all about, just like what we're seeing with this crisis here in, in Houston with the way the world's come out and supported it. It was the same. We were inundated with 
local restaurants with the American Outlaws who supported the U.S. team. The Canadian Federation sent us some uh, undergarments because we were getting into some cold weather places. Uh, they were great in supporting us. I mean, it was unbelievable, the outpouring of things that got us through that. And we literally had, I didn't even have my whole team there that week of training because some of our kids were playing in the U.S. colleges and some of the colleges wouldn't release them till right before. So I think we had two days to prepare for the U.S. And, you know, as many of you may remember, we went on that game and we took them to about the 70th minute and, and, and at 0-0 and, and Wombat finally, you know, got a goal late and uh, to win at 1-0. And, you know, we go through that qualification and we, we lose to, to Costa Rica in penalty kicks. Uh, overtime and penalty kicks. All we needed to do was win that game to qualify. And then we go into the last game against Mexico. We were winning 2-1 with 12 minutes left. Mexico came back, comes back and ties it. We lose 4-2 in overtime. And and now we've got this one more chance to, to play Ecuador in a home and away. And we had no money. We went to Mexico. They were gracious. Leo Cuellar is a good friend of mine, so he was gracious to say, you got to get into Mexico for the next seven days because in Ecuador you're playing in 9,000 feet altitude and you won't make it if you don't do some altitude training. So he got us there, got us into Mexico. We trained at their facility in their national training center. And then literally we got through that week getting ready to go to Quito to, to, uh, to play the game. And um, we had no money for flights, you know, so... Somehow we scramble, and, and the Federation got some money put together, and, and somehow we got on a plane and got to Ecuador. And wow. We went up there, 9,000 feet. It was an unbelievable experience. It was about 20,000 people at the game. I've never been in such difficult um, playing conditions. Literally, as a coach, if I got up and walked out to the track to try to yell instructions, I was getting lightheaded. That's how bad it was. I had no idea how players play 90 oh. minutes at that altitude. But I don't think anybody's won there other than Brazil one time in, in that site, um, uh, both men and women, and that's obviously why they played it. But we drew there 0-0. So we come back, and we have to play the last leg at home in Trinidad. And the irony of it, uh, Dean, was amazing because a couple months earlier, this was like the first first weekend of November or December, I can't, I, I can't remember the date, that we're going to play that last leg. But we had played the last weekend of August in the Caribbean football championships to get us to qualify for CONCACAF. And we played at Hazley Stadium in Trinidad in front of about 3,000 people. Now, go fast forward four months, you know, down the road, the, the, the whole island got behind us. We walk into that stadium, and that's the stadium that, if our fans remember, is when Caligari hits the game winner to put the U.S. through against Trinidad and Tobago to the first yeah, World Cup. Yeah, remember it like yesterday. Yep. Yeah. So we're, you know, for me, it means a lot to go back and play in that same stadium. And the thing was sold out, Dean. It was 20,000 people. It was just packed. Uh, unbelievable turnout. Um, we ended up playing great. We hit the bar twice. We miss a, a breakaway. We're zero zero. There's three minutes of added time, and about the 93rd minute, they score a goal off a free kick, and, and they go through instead of us. And um, you know, so close, and and yet, you know, the story of knowing how little we had to prepare, and, and I could go through and talk to you about our preparation. You'd be amazed at how close we got to qualify.
combined with so little preparations to qualify. It's really sad for those players that the Federation is is not supportive of the women and the men the way they should be. And you know, there's a lot of issues over there, but uh, great experience. I loved every every minute of it, and I volunteered my time to do it. And Sheldon Phillips was great, um, uh, supporting us as much as he could as our general secretary. And and uh, Lincoln came back and assisted me as a goalkeeper coach. And of course, I had my son there, so it was it was a, a great experience. So after all of that and volunteering your time and being at Houston, you said it already, no regrets for either one of those situations. No regrets, is that right? No, I really don't, Dean. I mean, um, I, I think it's one that I'm just always a forward-thinking person, and um, I just felt like it was the right move because I'd won two national championships. I think to date I'm still the only one that's won multiple championships other than Anson, and nobody's catching him. Now that's going to change here pretty soon because – you know, Amanda's going to win one at UCLA, or Paul's going to win it at Stanford, or, or Mark's going to win it, you know, at, at Florida State. But I just felt like I'd done enough in the college game. If things didn't work out, I could always go back to the college game. Interesting enough, I'm stuck on 399 total wins in the college game. So this the, the OCD part of me says, hey, you need to go back and at least get one more win to get that to an even 400. But uh but no, seriously, I, I don't have any regrets. I, the only thing I regret is not investigating the situation in Houston a little better than I did. I just thought there was a little bit more commitment there uh, than, than what I found there to be. And that's outside of that, I think it's made me a better coach. My experience with Trinidad and Tobago on the international stage has made me a better coach. It's opened doors for me around the world. I'm... I'm in some discussions right now with a team over with, with a situation overseas that I should know that's going to work out in the next 20 days or so. So, um, no, I, I, I'm just not one that I can dwell on, you know, the past. Here you are, uh, you're, I think, 60 or 61, and you've got those incredible genes, Randy Waldrum, that, uh, you know, you still look like you're 45, by the way, <laughs> that make us all jealous, particularly in the, the broadcast world. So, I mean, that's that's today's, you know, 40, as you know. So you've already kind of right. hinted that uh, there might be a job overseas, but you also kind of teased us with the notion of getting 400 and, you know, maybe 500 with the way you coach college. Uh, is it still that national team-type dream highest? level though that keeps you charging on or is it that 399 number yeah no i i think right now for me it's it's i'm still driven it's to a point of going you know the likelihood of something happening in the u.s is probably pretty slim uh at this point in time with the national team i think you know jill's going to take it through another cycle that one i think is is, is not going to be a possibility something may work out overseas for me in that realm and, and if it does I'm, I'll be really excited about that uh, if that comes to fruition but if it doesn't I'm not closed at all to the next college opportunity you know I or back you know something may happen with the NWSL again and, and the door may open there and I wouldn't shut that door if, if that if that door opened with another team uh, in the NWSL but you know if the right college job opened up I, I could certainly see myself going back to college and at least hitting that 400, and and, and um, I do think the next move, you know, will probably would probably be your last. If I go back to college, then I think that's where I would stay. If it's a national team that I get, then obviously that probably is going to take you through the 2019 cycle. So there may have to be one more job even after that. 
but I'm getting to that point in my life. I'd like my next move to kind of be my my last move and and finish out somewhere and and do it you know do it the right way and you know I, I still you don't forget how to coach. I wasn't successful thirty years of coaching and go to Houston now all of a sudden not know how to coach for three years and and become a bad coach. So you know I know what I'm capable of doing and I know now a little bit more experience in the pro level to know what I've got to look for to make that situation to be a right situation. And I've got gained more experience with the international game as well with Trinidad. So I think I've I've gained, even though it didn't work out in Houston, the gains that I've made by doing it and by doing Trinidad and Tobago have certainly better prepared me for that next move if that's where I go. If not, I'm certainly not opposed to going back to the college game and trying to be the first to win a national championship at two different schools. Okay, we started talking about uh, the incredible work uh, that uh, the community of Houston did there as you witnessed firsthand the, the, you know, the, the travesty and tragedy of a hurricane. And I think one of the things that, Randy, that uh, you probably say to me even right here on this podcast is you've been incredibly blessed. Yeah, you're not at Houston anymore, but seeing that the travesty that a hurricane creates, it's not even remotely close to compare what you're going through right now, a hurricane. So we'll, we'll correct that right now, and I think you'll put a stamp on it, really, because the sun's going to rise again, right? And you're going to continue to do what you love. Oh, it will. There's no question. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next move. Uh, there's certainly nobody out there that should be worried about me uh, from that standpoint. And I'm just excited about, you know, turning the page and getting to the next chapter. And, you know, whatever realm that takes me into, I'll be excited about that move and, and ready to, to make that next program the best it can be as well. And, and I'm really confident in, in my abilities and, and what I can do and what I bring to the table. So uh, I'm in a good place. It's never easy to lose your job. I, I, I thought I might be fortunate enough to get through it and, and be one of those coaches that escape, escapes it. But, you know, it does happen. We're in that business. And, um, you know, it's, it's never easy to have that happen. But I also go back and I look and I say, well, there's a lot better coaches out there in this world, in our sport, than me that have lost their jobs, you know, and, and they've come back and done fine. So if Mourinho can lose his job at Chelsea and come back and land Man United, you know, I, I think there's other examples of that uh, that we can all look at. Uh, I think I'll, I'll certainly land on my feet and, and looking forward to that next move. A big shiny moment for you. We touched on it when we started When. You were president of the NSCA as it was named then, and now the United Soccer Coaches. That was a, a great time for you. You were you were all in. Not only were you having great success at Notre Dame, but you were all in in that role. Well, what, I, what I'm most proud about with that role, Dean, is as I was the president at the time, it, even though the decision was hard, we made the change to kind of move, take it more into the mainstream, get into more of a business level, and, and we were at some times that that the NSCAA financially was not in the place where it is today. And uh, by bringing Joe Cummins in and him bringing his business acumen uh, and his ability as a general manager to come in and really turn that around. Uh, and I look at us now with what Lynn has you know, going for her and seeing us in the new facility in Kansas City. Um, I mean, it's, it's amazing to, to see the transformation of where it was when I was there. Um, not only as the president, uh, but even before those five or six years before serving on the executive committee, that to see it grow and now be in such a financially secure place uh, really makes me proud to, to have been a part of that. And I love the association and all it stands for and will continue to be there and be a support for 
uh, for Lynn and for the board um, moving forward for as long as I live. And now it stands for United. United Soccer Coaches, that unity was one of the reasons why Lynn reached out to you to make sure you were okay as well. And knowing that unity is there, you know, talk a little bit about the name change. And then with that, Randy, we're going to close with the most important message, and that is for you to repeat again how people can help the folks that are struggling in Houston still today because of Harvey. But uh, it, it's all about unity, isn't it, Coach? Well, it is, and I know it's difficult. When you make a name change from an association that's had its success and had its history for so long, it's never easy. And I know there's a lot of people that are were opposed to it, and they probably are opposed to it. <clears throat> but I do think moving into branding and this new time and new new kind of marketing age that we're in, I think Lynn, obviously, and the board did their research and realized that uh, there were some things that we did need to, to change. And she reached out to all of us. Uh, previous to her, and and I gave her my blessing and, and supported it. And even though I have mixed feelings at times about the history part of it, um, I know it's the right move moving forward. And change is never easy, but um, you know it's it's the right direction for us to take. And certainly, it will uh, continue to unite our entire association of not only coaches but referees and administrators and you know sponsors and all those that give so much of their time for developing this great sport. We're on the right path with that, and it's going to continue to thrive, no question about it. And then United, your community there in Houston, tell us again what uh, you recommend people if they want to contribute to the cause led by J.J. Watt and Kalia Ojai, who played for you at the Houston Dash. Where do they go, Coach? Well, they go to youcaring.com slash J.J. Watt, and they can donate there, and it will go directly into the charity that he has put together that's raised over $30 million. That money will be spent in getting back to the community and, and replacing damaged homes and properties and, and things that uh, so many of us have lost here uh, in the Houston community. So it is a part of that United acronym that we we're talking about with our association now. And Lynn reached out, and I shared with her. I thought that was the, the best way for us to go for any of our coaches any of the people involved in our sport that want to give, I think that'd be a great direction to go. And I know Kalia would, would really appreciate it as well as JJ and certainly all the folks in Houston. And speaking of United, anybody that knows you at all is united behind the incredible success you've been and where you're going next. We look forward to tracking that as well. Thanks for everything you've done for the association. Thanks for all the time you've given me over the years during those college soccer games. I always found it to be enlightening and a true joy. Randy Waldrum, this has been a fantastic interview. Thanks for uh, you know opening up and, and telling us uh, about uh, what you went through and knowing that, uh, as we said already, the sun's going to shine on Randy. Andy Waldrum, we know it. Well, thank you, Dean. I appreciate you thinking about me, and it's been my pleasure. It's been my pleasure, and I hope uh, everybody listening has been your pleasure, too. We'll be back next week with a full slate of interviews. I can promise you that. I hope you enjoyed our time with Randy Waldrum, and I hope you enjoy your week. Once again, for the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Snap, I'm Dean Linky. Thanks so much for being with us. The NSCAA is now United Soccer Coaches. We aren't changing who we are, just what you call us. Start your free no-risk trial membership today. Go to unitedsoccercoaches.org slash join.